0: Medicine Today. This is John Murphy and it's my pleasure to welcome as our guest for this podcast, Dr. Casey Mara. Dr. Mara is an assistant professor of surgery and is responsible for the plastic surgery lab at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Mara, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about plastic surgery lab. What's the the nature of your interest in your research, if you would please?
1: Well, the Plastic Surgery Research Lab was created in 2002 under the advisement of the new chief of plastic surgery, Andy Lee. He was recruited to the University of Pittsburgh from, from Harvard, and when he came to Pitt, he wanted to build a laboratory so that primarily the residents in plastic surgery can conduct research focused on cutting edge areas in plastic surgery. And these include reconstructive microsurgery, craniofacial reconstruction, and limb and hand transplantation. So at that time, he spoke with Alan Russell at the McGowan Institute, who introduced him to myself, and we met, and subsequently, I arrived at Pitt in November of 2002. At that time, we began to build a laboratory And we started off with a few members, and now this year we've grown to about 40 members in the lab. And since that time, we've split our areas of focus into three, and we now have three separate physical laboratories.
0: What goes on in terms of uh, research related to plastic surgery that our uh, listeners might be interested in? If I recall correctly, you said you had four focus areas.
1: Right, in the tissue engineering lab, we are focused primarily on using adult stem cells from discarded fat tissue to regrow tissue. So, for example, uh, removal of fat from um, a patient, say liposuction or a tummy tuck, or our our close collaborator, Dr. Rubin, his niche is body contouring after major weight loss. Uh, We use that fat. It's transported to the lab. We process the fat and we remove the adult stem cells. Then those cells are used to grow different types of tissue, primarily um, tissue such as fat, bone, and cartilage. Those are the phenotype of the stem cells, a mesenchymal stem cell. So those, those tissues are fairly straightforward and non-controversial. What is more controversial is trying to promote these fat-derived stem cells to turn into brain cells or neurons or even beating heart cells, those have been have shown to be more challenging since the advent of fat-derived stem cell research, which was in 2001. So this
0: is very interesting. So you take a, uh, a tissue uh, that's been discarded, liposuction, and you're using it for or exploring its use for many beneficial purposes. I presume that the availability of liposuction fat is uh, not an issue.
1: Uh, no. <laughs> okay. in, especially in, in Pittsburgh and in, in the Midwest, typically, in the United States, there is no shortage of overweight patient base. So we have yet to find a patient who refuses to donate their fat to our research. So we have no shortage.
0: Tell our, us uh, where this, uh, this is from evolutionary perspective from the science and when, when might uh, some of these technologies be available for uh, clinical use?
1: Well, in Europe and Asia, the cells are already being studied in humans. America is, is a little... Little more behind. Um, We're planning for clinical trials, as are many different research groups and companies throughout the United States. But in Germany, for example, they've used fat derived stem cells uh, to help regrow bone in a pediatric skull. Um, In Spain, they've used the fat derived stem cells to help close fistulas in five different patients. And in Japan, they're routinely using fat derived stem cells to augment. Um, soft tissue growth after mastectomies, uh, partial mastectomies, or after any tumor removal, these cells can be help can help regrow the tissue. So in America, our first some of our first trials that we're looking at is for simple wound healing, and these are would be topical um, topical delivery of the cells. Uh, we're also interested in, as I mentioned, bone repair. Cartilage repair and soft tissue repair as well. So, I think in our laboratory, we're looking at um, hopefully in the next two to three years, maybe even sooner, looking at these cells in, in efficacy trials in humans. And this is in collaboration with the Donenbergs at the Hillman Cancer Institute, who already have set up a facility to use bone marrow derived stem cells in patients. And we hope we've begun using and optimizing our procedure in that facility to use these cells in humans.
0: This is most interesting. Is uh, many of our listeners recall, we've had previous guests on this uh, uh, podcast, like uh, Dr. Badalak, uh, who uses a uh, n- naturally-derived extracellular matrix for soft tissue repair. We've had uh, uh, Dr. Wagner, who is using some uh, uh, chemically-synthesized scaffolds for uh, Tissue repair. Can you just share a few remarks with us about uh, how your approach uh, differs from theirs?
1: Well, we also look at both naturally derived scaffolds and synthetically derived scaffolds, and we do collaborate with Dr. Badalak. We've analyzed his extracellular matrix particles with our stem cells in different models, and we found that the stem cells readily attach to his native biomaterials. And remodel and become vascularized. So it's a very promising approach that we're taking. And this is by using the, the particles, we have an injectable approach, which is highly desirable from a surgical perspective and a patient perspective. So, for example, we seed fat-derived stem cells onto small particles, they attach, we then inject them, and in, in, in the future, into the patient small injections, small weekly injections, which allow immediate vascular and complete vascularization. And then we slowly inject the materials and cells until the desired tissue shape is formed. So we found an advantage with the quickly degrading extracellular matrix materials of Dr. Badalak's lab. Now, instead of the particles, we're also investigating liquid hydrogels that we've developed in, in my laboratory that allow a liquid formulation of the stem cells to be injected and once injected the liquid gels into a very um, elastic material that can be used we're looking at, at hydrogels for both soft tissue and cartilage regeneration so the approach there they are common, Avenues among all of the tissue engineering research groups here at the McGowan Institute, and as I mentioned, very collaborative uh, approaches as well. And injectable and new materials is um, one of our major areas of focus at this time.
0: So if I could paraphrase what you just told us, that one of the principal differences in the approach that you're following is that uh, your, your system would be an injectable system whereas uh, the Badalak and and Wagner approaches uh, involve uh, some type of, uh, i use the word, structural scaffold?
1: Um, not necessarily. As I mentioned, the the particle approach, so Dr. Badalak can remove a layer of intestinal material or bladder matrix. That sheet can be morselized into small particles and then injected. And Dr. Wagner's work is more... I believe, focus more on patches and vascular grafts that a preformed scaffold is more desirable in those situations, whereas our situation where there's just a a non-uniform defect that differs from patient to patient, an injectable formulation is more desirable.
0: So I understand that your interest areas in the lab, in addition to soft tissue, uh, also relate to cartilage, nerve, also a, a bioreactor technology. Perhaps uh, we could uh, share with the audience just a few highlights in terms of each of these. Let's start with cartilage because there certainly is a, a, a lot of interest in, in that area and at least I have the impression that uh, perhaps the tissue engineering in that arena hasn't matured as rapidly as soft tissue has.
1: So our cartilage work, we have a couple different projects. One is collaborating with Constance Chu in orthopedic surgery, where we're developing, the again, the injectable hydrogels to be implanted into knee defects to regrow cartilage. And we're also working with industry, Medtronic, in an attempt to f- use some of Medtronic's growth factors to regrow uh, osteochondral defects and osteoarthritic patients.
0: what's the status of this? It, it seems as though there's uh, lots of lots of interest in this in terms of uh, patient needs, but
1: uh, right there's no question it's a very large clinical market, um, both cartilage repair and osteoarthritis. and we're in we remain in animal studies at this time but are looking forward to larger animal studies and then clinical trials, perhaps in the next five to 10 years.
0: And in terms of nerve repair, uh, again, can you share a few highlights with us about uh, that area?
1: We've been interested in long gap peripheral nerve repair for about seven years. Uh, we, we are interested in the wounds obtained um, on the battlefield, in trauma or again after tumor removal that leaves a large gap um, in a nerve, say a sciatic nerve or a nerve in the hand that cannot be repaired by simple suturing the nerve together, but a guide needs to be implanted. Um, In some cases you can use a nerve from your leg, but that's not always optimal. And especially with compromised patients, so we've been trying to design an off the shelf nerve guide that could be used on the battlefield um, that can be used here in hospitals that contain factors to promote nerve regeneration or axonal elongation over long gaps, which clinically it is not has not been shown to be feasible in the human. any gap over three centimeters will not be has not been shown to be healed with a synthetic guide. So our efforts um, in that area involve very long sciatic nerve defects to be repaired with an off-the-shelf biodegradable nerve guide.
0: And if I may ask, is I know this is still in the laboratory stage, but does this continue to appear feasible in the future to do this?
1: We believe so. We're just... Slowly increasing our animal size and the size of the defect in an attempt to regrow the nerves over the long gaps. And again, I would say maybe a four to six uh, year time frame before we would have, we would be able to study these guides in clinical trials.
0: And the last of the four areas is this area about bioreactors. Uh, Perhaps the a uh, place to start would be to briefly describe to our audience what a bioreactor is.
1: Well, we've been very fortunate to collaborate with your Gerlock of the McGowan Institute who has designed and patented these um, hollow fiber bioreactors that are in clinical use in Europe. Uh, patients use these bioreactors as an artificial liver until a liver transplant is available. And what these bioreactors allow is a rapid expansion of stem cells in a very small volume. For example, yesterday, we isolated almost a kilogram of fat from a patient, and we have several, over two dozen uh, flasks, each containing a million of our cells that will continue to grow and be split, so eventually we'll have about 60, 60 to 80 flasks of this patient's stem cells in our incubators in our lab. And instead, what we can do with a small bioreactor about the size of a baseball or even smaller is expand those cells. Uh, Dr. Gerlach has mimicked conditions in the body in the bioreactor that allow for rapid expansion of the stem cells in the bioreactor with minimal um, media flow, minimal um, volume in the bioreactor. So instead of 80 flasks, Filling up our incubators, we have a small setup um, with a bioreactor. Then we can remove those cells and have nearly a billion stem cells in a short amount of time able to be injected back into the patient.
0: And perhaps many of our listeners are aware of it, uh, just so everybody's on the same page. It's uh, it's important that uh, you have a patient's own stem cells for these therapies to avoid immune response problems.
1: Well, that that has been our target. It may be possible to have a, a transplant of fat stem cells from another patient, which would mean an off-the-shelf stem cell seeded construct. However, at this time, it's not been shown yet, and we're not sure... Um, if the patient would eventually reject the other person's stem cells or if immunosuppression would be necessary. It may, that the future is very bright and it may be very promising. However, given the nature of the abundance of adipose or fat tissue on most people, we've targeted an autologous transplant where the patient will get their own fat cells transplanted back into them, avoiding the use of possible rejection or immunosuppression.
0: So all these areas sound very promising and uh, uh, of course our listeners need to recognize that there is uh, a uh, a long lead time between the the concept and the uh, affirmation of the technology in in the laboratory until you can get clinical assessment. But I gather from your comments that uh, in 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 the three to five year time frame, it's your estimation that uh, some of these things will have matured to the point that uh, they'd be uh, clinically viable approaches.
1: I agree, but as with any new drug, the first the first studies will require safety and efficacy testing. So, for example, the first clinical trial may not regrow cartilage in the knee, but but just to see if the injection and the procedure of implanting stem cells is safe and effective. So we are still years away, but it's, it's very promising and we're very optimistic.
0: Dr. Mara, where does uh, one get more information in terms of uh, these particular endeavors?
1: Well, with the McGowan Institute, we've created an adipose stem cell center. And this site is available on the McGowan Institute web- website. And on that page, you'll find information about our therapies, our projects, and our contact information as well.
0: And uh, we will list on the uh, podcast website uh, the link to uh, Dr. Mara's page that she just uh, referenced as well. I also know that you have a uh, very intense effort in terms of uh, training of uh, new scientists. and uh, uh, You want to share a little bit of your interest in that area as well, please?
1: Well, our laboratory is very dedicated to the training of, um, as you mentioned, new scientists, but especially underrepresented uh, minorities and female students. We've mentored over 50 undergraduate medical students in our laboratory, and we also have a high school program that we've established where we've mentored over a dozen female high school students from western Pennsylvania, and we're in the process of expanding that program um, into a longer program so what we do with our outreach is visit high schools and science centers and discuss our research, and then the students are, are encouraged to contact me, which they do, and, and we also have a website for this. It's called our Rose Program, Research Opportunities for High School Students, and this, this what we want to do, uh, myself and my lab members, we want to encourage women and minority students to if they're interested in a future in science and medicine, to give them an opportunity to see what it's like to have a career in this field. And we support them and encourage them as much as we can.
0: Yeah, there's clearly some exciting opportunities in this area, and I presume that uh, one of the essential early steps in terms of uh, getting underrepresented categories to uh, decide to pursue this career track Is that did you get the proper education at the the high school level?
1: We hope that's the case. We don't have any prerequisites on what high school you belong to, but we do like to, um, we do try to find students with a genuine interest in science and who are motivated to go into engineering, medicine, or science.
0: Very good. Dr. Mara, thank you for joining us today and uh, sharing uh, a few highlights in terms of your very diverse and exciting program. I'd like to remind our listeners that uh, we are not able to diagnose uh, medical problems uh, over the internet, but we do appreciate uh, suggestions as terms of future programming. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com with any suggestions that uh, you may have. And as we conclude, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, which sponsors these podcasts, and say until we meet again in two weeks, the best wishes to all our listeners. Thank you very much.